Let's open our Bibles tonight as we're in the Psalms. I want to do a quick review of 9, 10, and 11. 10 and 11 actually go together. I got really sidetracked last week. See if I can do better tonight. As we look at 9 and 10, one of the things that I pointed out is that in the Hebrew, they're not 9 and 10, they're just one psalm. That's in the Septuagint and in the Latin Vulgate. Uh, These two psalms are together, and they're considered as one, not two. Also, it's an acrostic psalm. Psalm 119 is acrostic. And um, it's sort of Hebrew poetry, the way they lay it out. But there's 22 letters in the uh, Hebrew alphabet. And so in Psalm 119, you have it laid out that way. Also in Psalm um, 9 and 10, they are also connected in like manner. And um, you have it divided up, and uh, it's not seen in the King James. You'd have to go to the, again to the Septuagint or the, or the Latin Vulgate to put these two psalms together. And brings us to uh, 11 tonight, and I'm going to try to get through 11.15. As I studied this through, there, there are those who just see this as David pouring out his heart before the Lord. Um, J. Vernon McGee sees chapters 9 through 15 as a continuing thought by uh, David prophetically, and he's applying it to different portions of the Great Tribulation. And uh, I see where McGee is coming from in that, and I, I, I would not be dogmatic one way or the other. But as we go through this section, it does change when we get to um, 16. And uh, let's dive in in chapter 11 tonight, <clears throat> um, as we see David in flight here. So it does have a personal application, but then also like uh, many prophecies in the Old Testament has a double, double fulfillment. All right, Psalm 11, to the chief musician, a Psalm of David. In the Lord I put my trust, and how can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? So in this very first verse here, we have the idea of flight, um, some people speculate he was running from Absalom. We know uh, there was one psalm where he indeed is dedicated to his flight from Absalom. Then there's those that believe he's actually running from Saul. Um, but the fact of the matter is we don't know because it really doesn't tell us here. But he's thinking about it, and he says, why should I do it for look? The wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. Um, And so we have David going through his trial, and he's thinking about taking off and running. All kinds of places we could go with that. There's people every day that you know and I know, they go through a trial, and um, they just check out for a while, They, they backslide for a while, uh, there was a, um, a gal, we did a wedding this last weekend up in Wapaka, and um, ended up running into people that just got away from the Lord and um, trying to make their way back to the Lord. I didn't know it, but uh, the, the photographer there that was doing the wedding um, 
she gave me one of those looks like, I, you know me and I know you, and I just thought, well, I know she did one of the weddings here at the church. Um, but the, the fact of the matter was I did her wedding 15 years ago. <laughs> and uh, and uh, her and her family, you know, were involved with Calvary for years. But, you know, the, they got out of fellowship for a while, and before you knew it, they're not plugged in or going to church anywhere. And another couple from the church picked up on it and sort of just zeroed in on, you know, you really should really get back with the Lord. And she goes, yeah, I know I should. You should really get back to church. She goes, yeah, I know I should. And um, I could just, they were lovingly, but, you know, at the same time it was a good exhortation not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. The Bible's real clear about it. And we're to do it that much more as we see the day approaching. And uh, so I, I wrote it off as a divine appointment. I didn't think it was a coincidence at all. Uh, I looked at the gal, and, and uh, I called her by name after she, she told me uh, uh, who she was. And, and um, I'm hoping that uh, she comes full circle and gets back with the Lord. So why run? David's thinking about it, but he says, why do that? I'm going to just trust in the Lord. Verse 3 if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? There's a whole study on this. If we looked at it from a national uh, perspective, we, we think about how our country started, uh, Judean Christian ethics that it was founded upon. And I was listening to um, a program today, Jack Hibbs, who's talking about, you know, uh, when, when our country was founded. And uh, the guys would go out to battle, or even during World War One. you know, they got down, talked to the Lord before, confessed their sins, and acknowledged the Lord as they were going into battle. Well, that was our foundation. Those days have come, and those days are gone. We're no longer uh, a nation. We're, we no longer have a Judean Christian ethic. Pretty much every man for himself. Everybody does pretty much what's right in his own eyes. Why? No foundation. Foundation has got to start right here behind the pulpit. It's got to be transmitted down to the flock. We're to feed the sheep. Jesus said, Peter, if you love me, then you're going to feed the sheep. And that's going to be passed on as dads, you as heads of your house, and you need to know 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says you're the head of the house. It's not an over-lordship authority type trip at all. It's just a fact that the, that the head of the family according to 1 Corinthians 11, is, is the Father. And he needs to be the one set in the tone. And in agreement with him will be his wife. And uh, they provide that environment uh, to build that foundation. So even though our nation has lost its course, it doesn't have a heading, and um, uh, that doesn't mean that that should affect you or it should affect me. We should only be concerned with the Lord thinks about our walks with him. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? It really boils down to that. What people um, do, it's going to be their own free will and their own choice. I know as for me and my house, like Joshua said, we're going to serve the Lord. It's a decision I've made. When uh, I did that many years ago, I was counting the cost because I, I knew it meant the rest of my life. If I'm going to do this, well, that was 40 years ago. And I wouldn't trade it for nothing. And... Um, um, I have, a, I have a, a course that's set. I don't plan on changing it. Next week we'll still be in the Psalms, just a little bit farther down the road. But the foundation 
If it's destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, they can continue to be a light no matter what. Verses four through seven, the Lord is in his holy temple. God's still on the throne. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the son of man. I got captivated by this. Uh, It was a picture in my mind type thought where David says that his eyelids test the son of man. In other words, he does if he uh, he did one of these things, and and just by doing that, because he's omniscient, and because there isn't anything he can't do, just by a little look, he can test a man or create a circumstance, or cause uh, his will or purpose to to be worked out. How does he do it? Just flick of the eye, a little look over here, a little look over there, and I think that's what David has here. His, his eyelids test the son of man. And the Lord tests the righteous. We're told not to think it's strange in the New Testament when your faith is tested, as though some strange thing has happened. I mean, how do you know that you're going to have faith unless your faith is tested? God knows how much faith you have. It's just that you don't know how much faith you have. And the only way for sure that your faith can grow that I'm aware of biblically is faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God, what you guys are doing tonight. Your faith should be increased as a result of the Wednesday night Bible study. Your faith should be increased by your morning devotions. When, when you're reading it, you get the first thing in your head in your morning, go, oh yeah, this is why I'm up. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And so that needs to be a discipline. And um, uh, you can't compromise on that. Because uh, the, the testings are going to come, and then you're going to find out just how much faith you really have. The Lord tests the righteous, ongoing. But the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind. Of course, Sodom and Gomorrah come into mind. Of course, Ezekiel chapter 39 talks about fire falling down upon Gog and Magog. That's yet future, by the way. And that could be one of two sorts. That could either be the uh, Sodom and Gomorrah fire and brimstone, or it can be nuclear. And I think either one would fulfill Ezekiel chapter 39. And if you're not aware of that verse, I think we're watching the stage being set for this battle to unfold. And uh, the outcome of that war is five-sixths of the Russian army will be defeated on the hills of Israel. And then after that, you read a little bit farther, it says, and then fire will be sent upon the unrighteous. Uh, you don't want to mess with the apple of God's eyes, and that eye, and that's exactly what they do. This shall be their portion of their cup. The Lord used the same analogy um, when he talked about his death. He says, shall I not drink of the cup that the Father has given to me? And um, it's something that he did not want to do three times, and we'll get into it a little bit later um, on Sunday. Uh, three times we read that Paul prayed a prayer uh, that he didn't. He wanted out. He had the sword in the flesh, and he didn't want it there. He says, I want it out. Prayed about it three times. And after the third time, the Lord finally said, no, he answered him. The, the thorn staying, Paul, will keep you humble. Don't you remember you saw heaven? He said, I got the thorn because of the abundance of revelation that the Lord gave me. What revelation? 
The guy went to heaven. <laughs> you know, he saw, he heard. And he says, I knew a man and who was taken up to the third heaven. And he said, because of the greatness of the revelation, the Lord allowed this trial in, in his life, and he didn't want it there. I want this out. It actually says a messenger of Satan, so I imagine it was demonic in some sort. And the Lord says, no, we're going to keep this one. We're going to let you go through this trial and keep you humble, Paul. That's all Paul needed to hear. He wasn't, God wasn't talking, and when he talked, that's fine. As long as you're talking, Lord, that's all I care about. And he says, your strength, Paul, is made, your strength is made perfect in your weakness. Paul says, great, therefore I'm going to rejoice in my infirmities, that God's power can rest upon me. So we should have a whole different view of trials when they come. <laughs> I told you just a couple of weeks ago when my best friend got saved, he didn't know what a trial was, and he was riding high on, the, on his early walk with the Lord, no trial. What are Christians talking about trials all the time for? He comes up and he tells us, I prayed for a trial. And we all went, oh, no. The Lord's going to answer your prayer, buddy. He did. Doesn't, it doesn't take long. So the cup that the Lord has given us to drink, we drink it just as he did. I, I actually was wondering, it was two or three times, we'll talk about it more on Sunday, that the Lord wanted this cup to pass from him. And twice he asked. Um, but nevertheless, it was the Father's will that he drink it. It ends with, for the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, his countenance beholds the upright. In other words, he's watching. So he's thinking about running, he's being pursued, somebody's hot on his tail. Is it Absalom, is it Saul? Both want to kill him. I don't know if you've ever been on the run and somebody actually wants to take you out, but imagine what you'd be feeling. In the back of my first Bible, way back in the early 70s, I copied this out of it. I put it on the copier. It's about not understanding a trial when you're going through it. And evidently, I was going through a trial, and I found this poem, and it ministered to me, so I thought I'd share it with with you guys tonight. It's called uh, Some Time Will Understand. Not now, but in coming years, it may be in a better land. We'll read the meaning of our tears. And there sometime we'll understand. Then trust in God through all the days. Fear not, for he doth hold thy hand. Though dark thy way, still sing in praise. Sometime, sometime we'll understand. You know, we read in 1 Corinthians 13 that as soon as we're there, we'll be like him and we'll understand. That seeing through the glass darkly now, that's all gone. And there will be that instantaneous, oh, that's why you let me go through that. That's why this happened here. And if this one happened here, well, I would have met this person over there. And um, he, he, the Lord says he directs the step of the godly person. He actually goes before you and sets things up. One of the, the wisest things I remember Chuck saying about your daily devotion, getting up and say, Lord, I got, here's my schedule. This is what's laid out, but you have permission to intervene anytime you want to. And if we're going over here, then we go over there. And you just want to go and be led by the Spirit that way. So, Lord, you have permission 
to take my schedule, here it is. And if you've got something different planned, then let's go for it. That's what we'll do. And so, and it's interesting what happens when you, when you allow the Lord to do that. What, what can happen in, in the divine appointments that do take place? All right, Psalm 12. This is written on eight strings. It's a harp. Um, David was known in Israel for his ability to play this instrument. He was so well-known, it'd be like a well-known musician in our community. And um, that when Saul needed to be comforted by the troubling spirit that the Lord said upon him, they said, well, David in Bethlehem, he's a guy. He's a talent. He's a guy that can play this stuff. Let him come in. And as again, as we read these, we want to remember that these are all sung. This was on eight strings to the chief musician. It's a psalm. And um, this is the hymnal for uh, many in Israel today. So in this particular psalm, um, again, McGee's thoughts are 9 through 15, the tribulation. So the theme with his is the godly in the midst of the godlessness of the great tribulation. So this is where, of course, it's for David in that moment. But prophetically, just like Psalm 22, David was pouring out his heart. But clearly, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me is a fulfilled prophecy of what Jesus said. Uh, they cast lots for my garments. That's a prophecy of what happened at the cross. And um, David, as he's in the spirit writing the Psalms, he doesn't really realize that he's prophesying. And so McGee may be right here, McGee may be wrong here, but prophetically the psalm is like the preceding ones. It refers ultimately in its final fulfillment to the days of the tribulation, which will come upon Israel's godly remnant, also upon godly uh, Gentiles in that day. Um, in the opening verse, we find a description of the apostasy in those days. You see, there is to be an apostasy, and I can't, I'm going to get sidetracked here tonight on chapter 12 on the apostasy in the last days. Uh, you see, there is to be an apostasy in Israel as well as in the church. So, verse 1 is where we'll do a little sidetrack here. Help, Lord. For ungodly men cease, for godly men ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. Uh, they speak idle, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double tongue. So what we have here is an apostasy, and I'm going to have you, uh, well, let's read it up to um, verse 3 and 3 here. They flatter with their... They, their lips and their double-hearted, they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things, who have said uh, with our tongue, we will prevail, our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? In the last days, there is going to be this falling away from sound doctrine, people who were once solid in the faith. So if you would, let's go to the last book before Revelation, the book of Jude. It's only one chapter long. The whole book of Jude is about false teachers, false doctrine. It gives examples of um, 
It's interesting to me that the Holy Spirit put this right before the book of Revelation. And we'll go through it briefly, but as the chapter is going to deal with false teachers primarily and what's going to happen to them, I want you to notice verse 3 concerning you and I. Um, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Why? Because certain men have crept in unnoticed who were long ago marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and they deny the only Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we're going to get into here is in verses 5 through 13, past judgments where God judged false doctrines, false teachers, and he uses the example, first of all, of the fall from heaven, the great rebellion, where we have the angels, verse 6, that didn't keep their proper estate. As soon as we get away from understanding that we're in a spiritual war that's ongoing, that uh, Lucifer still is the god of this world, and he is the one pulling strings. He's crucifying Christians, as I speak, in... Um, in Iraq. I got a very disturbing email today um, that showed eight men on crosses. And uh, they were crucified in Iraq because they converted from Islam to Christianity and when given an ultimatum to convert back, they would not. And so I have the picture of them and it's very graphic. And um, it's hard to look at. And yet, um, the ones that are doing this is, is really the enemy. And going after Christians in particular. Why are Christians being singled out? Even a Muslim. Um, this, would, this is reserved this for those that would leave Islam and, and then convert to Christianity. So this is the real battle. It's, it's really over... Um, the gospel of Jesus Christ and every other false, false doctrine that's out there. There's only two, and it's one or the other. But Jude here reminds us that um, um, the angels that, that fell, they were in rebellion. Well, they're reserved in, in judgment. Now, when I teach on this and we go from the book of Revelation, we have two trains of thought in verse 6. One train of thought is that they're reserved in everlasting chains until the day of judgment of that great day. It could mean one or two things. The Bible tells us that you're going to judge angels someday. Let that settle in. Let's think about that for a second. You are going to judge angels someday. That's what the Bible tells us. It also could mean that they're going to be judged at at that time. But also, um, we have certain demons in Revelation 14, I believe it is, or 16, that are released by the Euphrates River. And they are, there's, I think there's some that are so bad that they can't be released because of the havoc they would be let loose on, on, on this planet. Um, Revelation chapter 9, one of the weirdest chapters in the entire Bible. We have an army of 
demons being let out of the pit. And they're, they're, they're called locusts, and, but these, that are, these locusts that are let out have a king over them whose name is Abaddon. And then the other one in the Greek is Apollyon, both names for Lucifer. So you have demons being let out of the abuso. And now how weird is that? I mean, that's pretty, pretty weird. It's interesting that in the Proverbs it says the locusts have no king. Because locusts come and go whichever way the wind is blowing. The wind will bring them in and the wind will take them out. They don't have a king over them. But not these. These in Revelation 9 have a king over them and it tells you their name. So if there's any doubt that they're demonic beings that are let loose on planet Earth, I mean the boogeyman, you know, as little kids we're afraid of the boogeyman under the bed, right? Or who's in the closet? Mom, look in the closet before you turn off the light. No. Mom, look in the closet before you turn off the light. And she's got to go and open it up and see there's nothing in there. <laughs> and then you can, you can go to sleep. Well, guess what? The boogeyman's under the bed. Actually, it tells us in Joel, they climb up the wall, they come in the window. It's, we're talking weird stuff, but it's the word of God, gang, and, and it's going to happen. And it clearly tells us, so the other train of thought here is that they're held in reserve until God's wrath is poured out and he allows this to happen. I mean, death even takes a vacation. People are going to be so freaked out they're going to want to commit suicide. Some will try, except death flees from them and for five months, the Bible tells us, uh, they won't be able to die. And there's, So there's this judgment for five months where death takes a vacation and that's just mind-boggling type stuff. There is one other time that judgment lasted for five months. Anybody know when it was? I've, I've mentioned it in studies before. It doesn't tell us in months. It gives us, it gives us the amount of days that the waters were upon the face of the earth. 120. Do the math. And um, you have five, five months taking place there. So you have judgment there. And it's the only other place where you have this five-month period of time. So, um, it goes on from um, judgment being merited out. It talks about um, the spiritual warfare, about their character, and how we're to have character that's different from our adversary. And uh, these verses here bring up more questions than they give us answers. Now, the Bible tells us that when Moses died, God buried him. And uh, these false teachers, one of the things that they're not going to have is they're going to be subject to no authority. There'll be lone rangers. They won't have anybody to be accountable to. They'll speak evil, it says, of they defile the flesh. They reject authority. And they speak evil of dignitaries. Now, to counteract that, Jude uses an illustration with Michael the archangel. Now, Michael always shows up as a guy who's fighting for, he's, he's the warrior. Gabriel's the messenger, but Michael's the warrior. He's in Daniel chapter 10. He's the one who dukes it out with the prince of Persia, that demon. So here he is again, duking it out with the devil. He'll do it again in Revelation 12. The devil and his angels fought against Michael and his angels. Verse 9 is weird. Yet Michael the archangel 
in contending with the devil while they disputed about the body of Moses. Boy, I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall on that one. Watch two heavyweights like that going after the devil wanted Moses' body. Why? Don't know. That's what I mean. It raises more questions than gives answers. Dared not bring a railing accusation against him, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. Respecting the position that evidently he once held as an angel that covered the Lord. But these speak evil whatever they do not know, and whatever they know they're naturally like brute beasts. These things they corrupt themselves. Now examples again of, of uh, those who have gone the wrong way. You have, you have Cain, who killed his brother, and you have Balaam, who was into it for the money, and you have Korah, who stood up and rebelled against Moses. And he says, I don't want you. You think you're the only leader here, Moses? We don't have to listen to you. And uh, Moses says, fine. You know, everybody that wants to be over here on my side, come on over here. And everybody with Moses or Korah, go over there. And if the Lord's not with me, okay, fine. But if the Lord is with me, then let the earth open up and swallow you guys all up. Well, the earth opened up and swallowed all those guys up, literally. They perished in the rebellion of Korah. That's how they perished. The Lord took them out his own way. So in these verses, this is the uh, characteristics of them. Let's go to the future now. This has been past tense up till verse 14. Psalm 12 tells us that there's going to be an apostasy in the last days. There's going to be a falling away from solid doctrine. Well, we have our own Cain's and Korah's and um, Balaam's in our time. We have guys that are into it just for the money, like a soulful dollar. He's a, a prosperity teacher, uh, T.D. Jakes, um, uh, Betty Hinn. These are prosperity teachers, Robert Schuller. Um, then you have guys that are preaching the gospel, but only partially. They don't give you the whole gospel. They only tell you the positive stuff, like, like a Joel Osteen. I mean, he's got the largest 50,000 people show up in Houston on a Sunday morning. And um, he, has, he has learned to know what people like to hear. And I would categorize him as not in the good category, but bad, because he's not laying it all out. When you lay it all out, the Bible says, um, many are called, but few are chosen. And the fact of the matter is, uh, there's, there's a weaning process that takes place in our, in, in, I think, in the church. But in the last days especially. So we do have uh, the Joyce Myers, the Brian McLarens, the William Paul Young who wrote The Shack, the Rob Bells, the Steve uh, Frutix. These would be the ones behind the pulpit. But just as influential are Christian musicians today. And I got, I got this... Um, this was, um, uh, was something we got off the internet today. Um, Dove Award winners, Gungar, this is a kid's name. Uh, he's a Dove Award winner. He's going to be performing at the Performing Arts Center in a couple of weeks, downtown Appleton. But uh, he, he came out today and openly said, and I'm quoting here, so this artist with a significant platform 
uh, believes the Bible is a bunch of stories and not authoritative. They don't believe the Bible is the word of God, and they're openly saying so. So I, as a pastor, have to say, look out for this, these guys too. I'll have to throw them in with the, the Benny Hens. Um, we have jars of clay, once solid, but now openly saying it's, the jars of clay are saying it's okay to be gay. And um, you have Christian artists like Jennifer Knapp, who's openly a lesbian. We have Ray Boltz, Christian musician for years, who, who comes out and claims he's gay. I found out, I had Mary go online and check it out. These guys are playing in Calvary chapels. And I want to call up the guys there, because I know most of them. Said, you know these guys don't even hold to the authority of Scripture, and you're going to put them in front of your youth group and let them say that the Bible's not, not literally the Word of God, talking about destroying a foundation and using Christians to do it. Well, the Bible says in the last days there will be the falling away. And we are watching it happen. Um, Judy and I watched, uh, uh, I better, how many, how, how sidetracked can I get? <laughs> oh man, this broke my heart because we watched Barry McGuire last night up at the Cup of Joy. This was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do because I love Barry McGuire. I was at Barry's 40th birthday party in 1975 in uh, Colorado Springs. I idolized him as a kid. He sang the Eve of Destruction. And he was on Broadway in Hair. He was in the New Christian Minstrels. Lynn Kellogg had the lead, lead role in Hair. She's a local Appleton girl, my age, a couple years older. Um, and Lynn uh, Kellogg and uh, Barry McGuire, they had, they had leading roles in Hair. And this was, in my generation, I mean, that was, that was it. That was Broadway. Lynn was doing a Johnny Carson show and a Breck Girl and Elvis movies, the whole nine yards. And... Then she got saved. Barry was doing the new Christian Minstrels, Hair, had, had the number one song in the country, Eva Destruction, and uh, gets radically saved. And uh, so my plan is, because uh, I did do know him a little, got to know him a lot better. And um, uh, Judy and I were watched this whole thing for about an hour last night of him up at the cup. He sang two songs in an hour, over an hour. And the rest of the time, he just ministered. And it was so good. He was so open and so transparent about what it means to be a Christian and so on and so forth that um, I invited him mm, uh, four years ago, maybe five, to come and do music for one of our prophecy conferences. And he says, great, I'll be there. And I'm talking to Warren Smith about it over the phone. And he says, well, I just got word. Somebody told me that Barry took my book and threw it in the garbage and told me it wasn't worth the paper, wasn't worth the ink, and, you know, the saying. <laughs> he threw it away. <laughs> and I said, and he says, yeah, it's too bad he's a universalist. And I said, Warren, Barry McGuire is not a universalist. I saw him in 1972 at Explo with Billy Graham and many other musicians. He got up and sang about Jesus and cried like a little baby. He's, if anybody knows the Lord, it's Barry. Well, he's still a universalist, right? And I said, no, he's not. And we, yes, he is. No, he's not. Yes, he is. No, he's not. That went on for I said, I'll call him up and ask him. So I did. And I said, Barry, Dwight, talk about conference here a little bit. Fine. Um, Barry, are you a universalist? He says, what is that? I mean, he didn't have any idea. He says, what is that? 
I said, a universalist is somebody who believes that everybody will eventually go to heaven. Well, he says, Dwight, of course I believe that. And I, I knocked my socks off. I said, Barry, I says, the word is really, this is, this is not a gray area we're talking about here. You're Barry McGuire, and you influence many, many people. And you are a universalist. He says, I don't know what that word means, but I do believe that, yeah, Jesus died for the sins of the world. And um, this really happened for a month because he was supposed to come to the conference. We emailed back and forth for one whole month, and every day it got more heated, more heated, and more heated. And by the end of it, he just said, Dwight, just come and let me sing my songs, and we'll leave it at that. And I said, Barry, the name of our conference is Staying the Course. I mean, how can I let you come up, knowing you're a universalist, and represent at a pastor's conference that encouraged the pastors not to compromise with the word of God and have you up here being the quintessential universalist? How can I, how can I possibly do that? And he didn't understand. And he, you know what he told me? He says, Dwight, you've never had kids. If you had kids, you'd have to understand. I said, Barry, it has nothing to do with kids. It's what the Bible clearly talks about and teaches. This is a doctrinal thing we're talking about here, not an emotional one. Well, um, when you're like this group here, or Ray Bolts, or Jennifer Natt, or Jars of Clay, let's face it, they influence our young people. And when they tell our young people, hey, it's okay to be gay, and what kind of message is that sending? So when we talk about apostasies in the last days, I have to name names. I have to let you know who's out there, who believes this, and why they're not here. So um, I pray for Barry. He ran into um, Chuck Gerard on a Christian cruise right after that, and he was madder than a hornet at me. And he was telling Chuck Gerard all about this pastor back in Wisconsin that just cut him off, wouldn't let him come. And Chuck and I know each other really good, but Chuck didn't wasn't putting two to two together and thinking it was me. And one time we're out for lunch and we're talking about Barry. And he says, Oh man, last time I was with Barry, he was so hot, he was hot under the collar. He's and all of a sudden it dawned him, You're the guy. <laughs> You're the guy he's mad at. Well, that's what happened. You can't compromise on these areas, on doctrinal issues. And, uh, you know, everything that he said was so good. He's got one of the most powerful testimonies. And he's so sweet. And yet, we see this falling away from sound doctrine. And we see it today in the church, as you're getting away from the word of God. We see it in the musicians. They're compromising so that they can make it. I know many a musician, very, very gifted, solid in the Lord, that moved to Nashville, Tennessee, and Nashville ate them up, chewed them up, and spit them out. And they left. They wanted a recording contract, but not without a cost. Anyway, that is really a sidetrack. So back to this. <laughs> Verse 14. For Enoch, seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Now you know who's coming back with the Lord. Not angels. Yes, they may be there too, but so are the saints. And um, this is also prophesied. To execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 
They're murmurers, they're complainers. They walk according to their own lusts, their own mouth, great swelling words, flattering people to great gain. Now, just stay there, and I'm going to go back and read uh, Psalm 12 again, where it says, With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off the flattering lips and the tongue that speak proud things. Well, he's going to. This is what is going to happen. He's going to execute judgment upon that pride. All right, now let's end this portion on sort of a happier note. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before the apostles by our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last times who walked according to their own ungodly lust. They're sensual persons. They cause division. They don't have the spirit. Look out for them. There's... um, But you, build yourself up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Again, the way you build yourself up is being in fellowship, being in the word, getting exhorted. Keep yourself in the love of God. This is a constant choice that you have. The Spirit's always there. The Spirit's always whispering in your ear. That which is good, that which is right. Here's here's the way, walk in it. And um, looking for, that I have underlined in my Bible, looking for. The reason I have Rick Warren on my list of false teachers is he tells us not to do that, that Jesus told us not to be concerned about last day things when the Bible says just the opposite. So I have him in my list here. Also, I think he is um, going to be a key player in the one world government. He's on the Council of Foreign Affairs with Tony Blair. Uh, Britain's um, prime minister. When Tony Blair retired, he converted to Roman Catholicism and he's dedicated the rest of his life um, to bring about a one world religion. That's what he openly says. And Rick Warren and Tony Blair are, are in the Council of Foreign Affairs together. Those are bedfellows. Tell me whatever you want to openly. And be, people sometimes get down on me because of Rick Warren. I said, fine. He'll tell you what you want to hear. It's what he's not telling you that you're not going to hear. He's not going to tell you, oh, yeah, I'm in bed with Tony Blair. We're working on a one-world religion. And that's exactly what he's a part of, his peace program. All right. Um, Keep yourself. My point here is looking for. I'm going to tell you just the opposite. You need to be understanding current events. You need to understand that what we're watching happening in the world today, I mean, I turned on the news this morning, they said the world's at war. They were going around the planet saying, war here, war here, war everywhere, war around the world. Well, they're birth pains. So we are to look for the mercy of our Lord Jesus coming, of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. (laughs) And then it says, on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. You know, we want to love on people. We want to let them know it's really the goodness of the Lord that leads a person to repentance. It really is when you find out how much God loves you. But if that doesn't work, don't be, a, don't be afraid to say, uh, you think you can mess around in that and you're saved? You think you can live together uh, before you're married, the Bible calls that uh, fornication, it's straight up. And it says those that 
do such things are not going to heaven. And uh, yet it's so commonly accepted in the world today, nobody thinks anything of it. A lot of times we get new sign-ups. We ask questions straight out. You know, are you living together? Are you not living together? So we have to deal with that. Lane had to turn away a couple, um, just a couple weeks ago. He brought them in the office. They were living together. And, and he says, well, we, got, we can't we got to deal with this before we can go any farther. And they wouldn't um, deal with it. And Lane says, then we can't marry you. That's just the way it is. And um, uh, those you warn. You warn with fear, pulling them out of the fire, even hating the garment defiled by the, by the flesh. Uh, so fear can be a factor. I think it should be. I think it was Spurgeon who took his kids to a, a place like your, your business, Dave, where they have the, the, the great big um, smelting pots and the, the heat's really hot. He took them right in there and took his kids in there and says, this is where some people will spend eternity. And they'll feel it. And he told them about the rich man and Luke 16, who is still in the flames of torment. And uh, it's quite a visual application for his kids. But he was serious about it. He wanted his kids to know what the reality of heaven and, and hell are really like. Save them with fear. As you can say, scare the hell right out of them, I suppose, you know, if it fits. And that's what it tells here. Hating even the garments. So save them with fear. Let them know you, you're walking on a slippery soap, my friend. And if you don't turn, if you think you can, this is acceptable, you're deceiving yourself. All right. But I love the ending. Bill put this to music, Bill Waters, before he went to be with the Lord. And um, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever, amen. I mean, a hot and heavy chapter, right? But boy, I like the way it ends. It's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless without sin. And you need to know that. We sing the song, White as Snow. And uh, I suppose we're, when we sin, we are probably harder on ourselves than anybody ever talking to us. And um, the devil's good on, on beating you up when you, when you trip and fall. But as far as the Lord is concerned, you're, you're that white as snow. And um, praise the Lord for that. All right, let's go back. There was my sidetrack this evening. And chapter Psalm 12. Finish it up in verse 5 through 8. They're very short psalms. For the oppression of the poor, for the sigh of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord, I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace on, of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord, you shall preserve them from this generation forever. But the wicked prowl around on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of of men. So Psalm 12, talking about the apostasy that was and is and will continue on, brings us to um, 13. Um, the theme here is David's departure plight. 
This section here, Psalm 9 through 15, deals again with that time of trouble which is coming. So I want to try to get through 15 tonight. It'll be sort of a complete thought. The great tribulation, and when one who uh, and one who uh, figures during this time will be the Antichrist. He'll be mentioned in here. The Jewish remnant, of course. This is when God keeps his appointment with Israel. He owes him seven years, according to Daniel 9. And um, that clock will begin to tick when the Lord takes his church out. When the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then he will deal with Israel. And it's, it's very, very clear chron- chronologically Everywhere you go into scripture and deal with the subject, it has that, that order to it. But David has written this psalm from his own personal experience at the same time, but it also has a contemporary interpretation. Also, it has a prophetic and chronological interpretation, reaching way down into the end times after the church is removed from the earth. I'm quoting McGee right now. David is being pursued as he writes the psalm, probably by King Saul. He may have been hiding at this time in the cave of Abedullam while the Philistines were teamed up to hunt him out. Day after day they sought him. They couldn't find him. So that's, again, personal for David, but again, Psalm 13, only six verses long. Um, let's read them. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And how long will you hide your face from me, and how long shall I take counsel in my soul? Having sorrow in my heart daily. Somehow that's encouraging to me that a guy like David um, and the Lord himself, he's known as a man of sorrows. That's what he's called in Isaiah, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And so when you're having a tough day and um, you read the Psalms and you go, David, you know, is just so open, and he says he's having his heavy heart daily. How long will my enemies be exalted over me? So that's why we think he's on run from Saul. Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, and lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him. Let those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in your mercy, My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Now, in verse 2, he's talking about sorrow in his heart daily. And then in verse 6, he says, I'm still going to (laughs) sing. I'm going to sing anyway. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Whenever you are going through the fire, it's a good time to sing psalms. And uh, David said he will do that even when he's going through this. This is a song. And it's a song of him being down and troubled, but it's to the chief chief musician again, and it is to be sung. But it would be obviously a a song definitely on the run. Brings us to chapter 14. Um, This one is where we're going to be headed to on Sunday. Um, it's interesting how it's laid out here. It's actually, Psalm 14 is going to be divided <clears throat> into three different sections. Um, the corruption of the world in the first section, the enmity against God's people in the second section, and the longing for the kingdom to come is the final section. So Psalm 
14. Verses, um, well, let's take the first. Well, like this is where the first one will just says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And um, just hold your finger here, and let's go to Romans chapter 1 quickly. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I'm, I'm taking you here because everybody knows somebody who says they're agnostic or an atheist. And the Bible says um, here that if they say that, they're a fool, number one. And um, they're not being honest at the same time. Because verse 18 of Romans 1 tells us everybody knows that there's a God. Then those who say they, there is no God we're told here in verse 18, they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Oh, they know. They just don't want anybody to rule over their life. It's not that, you, you, can't, you can't go outside and look at a rainbow, you can't go outside, I was thinking about it today, bees, um, we're growing tomatoes, and they gotta be pollinated and so on and so forth, and, and uh, everything, you gotta have a bee in order to have an apple. That's how it works. And so that just happened. I mean, think about it for two seconds. You go, the complexity and, and the wonder of it all. You have to have a bee, and then you have to have this to work this way in order for you just to have an apple. I mean, a little common sense says there has to be a God. But if you don't want God ruling over you, verse 18 says that they, this will be judged, but they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. What may be known of God is manifested in them. For God has shown it to them, so they're without excuse. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, and his eternal power and his Godhead, so that they're without excuse. The wonder of creation. (laughs) Man, Uh, watching a fish jump or watching the pelicans uh, fly over or uh, any one of his... uh, Creations go into the bird world and the complexity of uh, the structure of his body, what it takes for him to have flight. Who taught, who taught birds how to fly? <laughs> you know, that is so finely tuned and engineered, it doesn't happen per chance. I mean, these guys can navigate from the North Pole to the South Pole and do it all in one summer with no radar. They just know how to get there. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. They became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. What does Psalm 14 says? Say, the, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And you're a fool. I mean, you're, you're checking off simple common sense and logic. And you're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. Now this verse here, there's none that does good. Um, Verse three, the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there's any who understand. Ooh, this has got me going. This is gonna be our text on Sunday. It's God looking down and just saying, is there anybody down there? Aren't you getting it? Why are you here? What was your purpose? Why did God make you in the first place? 
Are you just sort of floating around and happen chance to just happen to come into existence? I mean, why are you here? And the answer is to seek God. Who seeks God? If you got that figured out, that's why you're here. That's why you were created. You were created to have a personal relationship with your creator. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? That's what it boils down to. I mean, your life was made to be in fellowship with your maker. And uh, we'll develop that thought more on Sunday. But it says, they've all turned aside. And now Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. Or the song, prone to wander, Lord, my heart feels it. Prone to leave the God I love. Something in us that turns away. We've turned aside. They've all, have all together become corrupt. There's none who does good, no, not one. Now, in your margin of your Bible, does it say Romans 3, verse 12? Mine does. Just look at your Bible. And if it doesn't, let's go to Romans 3 in the New Testament. Verse 12, it should say. Romans 3, verse 12. Paul is going to quote this. He's going to be making the case that everybody has sinned, all of sinned and fallen short. And it's either by faith in Christ alone or you have to have a perfect record and live the perfect life. Never sinned in thought, word, or deed, not once. So he lays out our dilemma that we have to be perfect before God, but we're not. So in verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. He's talking about the Jews. For we have previously charged both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, and here he quotes Psalm 14, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who understands who seeks after God. They've all gone out of their way. They have become uh, altogether unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Here the Holy Spirit uses Paul to pull this out of Psalm 14, and that's where it comes from. Gang, what you want to see is how the Old Testament and the New Testament is connected, and they're interwoven so perfectly. And uh, here's David. Um, Again, this is a psalm that he's writing. He has no idea that the Holy Spirit's going to use this and put it in Romans chapter 3, 3,000, or no, it would be 1,000 years later. 3,000 from our time. All right, back to Psalm 14. Verse 3, there's none that is good, no, not one. That ends up in Romans. Have all the wonders of iniquity, no knowledge. Who eats up my people as they eat bread, and they do not call on the Lord. Boy, I wonder if the Lord's going to show us, you know, when we read, we have not because we ask not. We go, Lord, why didn't this happen? Why didn't this happen? Well, you never asked me about it. You see, you have free will. I won't trumpet. I'd love to work in your life. Ask me. You have not because you ask not. You're a free moral agent. If you want me to lead and guide you, I will. And if you seek me with all your heart, you're even going to find me. But ball's in your court. I've done everything that can be done. Now it's all up to you. So whether we seek the Lord or we play church or Christianity, it really gets down to your walk, your personal walk with him. He knows and you know. 
Let's finish it out. Um, verse 6. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. The Lord does have compassion on the poor. He's anointed him, Isaiah said, to bring glad tidings to the poor. Oh, that, and here's the third section here. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. So this is obviously a prophecy, and we'll get into that a little bit more on Sunday. This is now fulfilled. This is a major prophecy of the Lord's people coming back in Zion. There's only one place that Zion can ever be, and that is in Jerusalem. Only in Jerusalem. Which brings us to our last one tonight, and it's uh, the characteristics of the godly. And we'll conclude with this one this evening, chapter 15. And it really changes after this. And um, let's pick it up in verse 1. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? And who may dwell in your holy hill? Let's put it in the form of a question. Salvation is, we've just read that there's none that are good. We know that. And yet, we're comparing this now to the righteousness of a holy God. As we get into this here, the scriptures are not contradicting themselves because, let's face it, there are men with absolutely no conscience and no soul at all this evening as I speak in Iraq um, who will, um, it's hard for me to tell the story, but It'll make the point. It's graphic, but it's out there. You can read it on the internet yourself. A 15-year-old girl um, was raped for 15 days by 15 different men. And um, they would marry her and then divorce her after they raped her. And then he'd turn her over to the next guy. And he would marry her and divorce her according to Muslim law. And uh, this went on for 15 days, and now she's dead. And that's just one of the stories that's out there. Dwight, why would you tell such a down, bummer story? Because there are bad people in the world. And that are, there are those that are like that. And then there are those who really want to do the right thing. Paul says, spirit's willing. <laughs> Flesh is weak. Lord, I want to do the right thing. These guys don't want to do the right thing. And what they're doing is wrong and evil. So who can... Who can have fellowship with God and who can be in his holy temple? Well, one who walks uprightly. And now we're, come, now we're talking men, men who want to. One who wants to walk uprightly and who works righteousness. I mean, he wants to find the right thing to do and then he does it. He speaks the truth in his heart. This book is what really is the, um, the plumb line, so to speak, for truth. And we know truth from error because of the scriptures. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? We're almost done. I didn't hear one amen. I'm not going to go on until I hear one amen. Okay, I'll finish up then. Okay. He who does not backbite with his tongue. These are gossipers. You know, there's always two sides to a story. 
Usually, it's, it's guys backbiting and gossip. It's usually guys in terminology like this. You know, we really need to pray for this person right now. And it's nothing more than backbiting or gossiping, but it's, it's couched in Christianese. Oh, we've got to pray for them. And here's why. Let me tell you why. Well, it's just gossip. It's just backbiting. He doesn't, he doesn't do evil to his neighbor, and he's not a backbiter or gossiper. Nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. I got number five. I actually numbered them as I went through the study today. Number six, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. Yeah, I despise these guys that are doing these deeds. Uh, there with no conscience at all. But he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change, he who does not put out money as usury, yeah, I'll lend you 10 bucks if you give me 15 back next month. No. If you got the 20, give it to him. If you got two and he doesn't have any, you you give him the one. Nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He can't be bought. He's not going to do something that's wrong for a price. And he who does these things shall never be moved. Wow. Paul in, in Acts talks about his trials and adversities, and I'll close with this tonight. When you think you're having a tough day, Paul says, let me tell you a little bit about my, my trials. He says, well, um, Jesus was whipped uh, 40 times. He says, that happened to me three times, or was it five times? Then he was beaten with rods. He was beaten so bad one time they left him for dead. I think he really died. And then after he came back, he went back into the same town he just came out of. He says, cold often, hungry often, forsaken by brethren all the time, ending up in prison whatever city I go to. And then when he goes through the list, this is the last thing he says, yet none of these things move me. None of those things move him. That's not going to bother him at all. All the stuff that he goes through. And when I'm having um, a difficult day or whatever, and I, I go on and see what fellow Christians, brothers in Christ, what's happening to them. Because, they, you know, I never really thought that it would come to death for Christians in our generation. It really didn't. And now, it's, an, it's not getting reported. I mean, just read the, read the Jerusalem Post. That's what we do as one of our links. Go to, go to Deb Kafile. It's an intelligence resource in the Israeli government. And they'll tell you what's really going on in the world. And have other news sources besides CNN or Fox for you get your reporting. But even though it goes to this list of all these things, he who does these things shall, shall never be moved. Well, that's Paul. Paul was committed. He counted the cost. And because he counted the cost, when all those things happened to him, that was, those were not issues as far as Paul was concerned. He had a job to do. And so he says, none of these things move me. So next time you're going through a trial, don't let it move you. We started tonight with David saying, well, maybe I'll make like a bird and get out of here. Now he says, no, I can't do that if I'm trusting in the Lord. So we've got to stay our ground. No matter what we go through, we've got to finish the course. We want to finish well. Amen? Leave it with that. Let's stand close in prayer. Lord, thank you. For Psalm 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. Thank you that David, under your Holy Spirit, Lord, anointed him to 
use some of the same scriptures in the New Testament. Lord, what a wonder your book is. And we do pray for the prodigals, Lord. Maybe we're thinking of somebody that once walked with you that isn't. Now we pray for them. We realize that we have feet of clay, and like David, there's times when we sorrow in our heart daily, all day long. So, Lord, thank you that um, you give us the Psalms, and we just pray for the rest of this evening, that you bless our fellowship with our brothers and sisters here, and go before us the rest of this night. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.